the way I think about it is history layers our world. So we're operating at the top right now of a set of layers, but the history is still below us. It's like archaeology. And those lower layers in the soil, they still affect what blooms in the garden and what doesn't bloom in the garden. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My very good guest today is Jeremy Suri, professor of history and public affairs at the University of Texas, Austin. Jeremy has a book out, his 11th, called Civil War by Other Means, America's Long and Unfinished Fight for Democracy. That book focuses on the period between the assassinations of Presidents Lincoln and Garfield and really considers how we are still dealing with problems whose roots extend back to that time. We had a very good conversation about Jeremy's career and work. By the way, he has his own podcast with his son and about our politics through the lens of this history. You should know about Jeremy's work. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, the interview with Professor Jeremy Surrey of the University of Texas. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Jeremy, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, sure. So my name is Jeremy Suri. I'm a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, a professor of history and a professor of policy at the LBJ School. I've written a number of books on American politics, the presidency, American foreign policy, and most recently, Civil War by Other Means, which is a book about the legacies of the Civil War for our current political difficulties in the United States. That uh, idea of history being valuable to a time that's very troubling again is kind of what led me to want to read your book and to talk to you on the podcast. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a little bit more about that biography because I'm very interested in how people's careers take them to the place like you have right now, which I think is enviable where you get to study and talk about things that are very relevant to the country and to its future. Tell me just a little bit about where you grew up and what kind of family and the beginnings of your education. Sure, sure. So I was born in New York City. My father's an immigrant from India, so I'm half Indian in that sense. And my mother is the child of Russian Jewish immigrants who fled pogroms in Russia to come to the United States. And so I'm, I'm a Hindu. I'm half Hindu, half Jewish. <laughs> From a very early age, as early as I can remember, I was always interested in history because I always wanted to understand the strange phenomena that brought my family together. You know, someone fleeing famine in India and someone fleeing hatred and violence and anti-Semitism 
uh, in Russia. I was always interested in reading about uh, history. I was fortunate to go to a very good public school in New York City. I'm a deep believer in public schools and then went on to, to Stanford and Yale and studied history and really came to the conclusion that I wanted to do the kind of work that was built around research in the past, but to understand the present through the prism of the past, to use the past to help enlighten us about our present world. That's the career I've pursued as a professor ever since. I want to ask you about that that Hindu uh, situation. My children are mixed. My wife is Chinese-American. I'm not sure that we understand exactly how that combination or that identity affects their psychology or their future or anything else. I think we are mostly lucky to not have to think about it, but it's there. But you grew up a little earlier than my kids and, and race is so central to this country's history and to your most recent book. How did your mixed racial uh, heritage affect how you grew up and affect how you see the world? It's a great question. And of course, the, the answer is complicated based upon you know what moment we're talking about. In general, I grew up in a New York City that was filled with racism. I mean, this was Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump's New York. It was a New York, New York City filled with a lot of racial and ethnic difficulties, but I was always in mixed environments. The high school I went to, Stuyvesant High School, public high school in New York City, uh, white people were a minority. It was a magnet school, but it was a magnet school of Asian kids. So white people and black people were a minority actually in the school. And the same is true at universities and, and in many other contexts. I've been fortunate to be in very mixed environments where I haven't felt that my mixed background was was a hindrance. Usually it's been an advantage. It's allowed me to connect with different groups. I can comfortably interact with people from South Asia. I can comfortably interact with people of, of Jewish origin, particularly from Eastern Europe. And I can pass as white in many contexts as well because I'm light-skinned. So I, I think a mixed background for me has, has largely been a benefit, but I will say that it's always meant that I've never felt that I fully belong in any of these standard hyper-patriotic groups. I'm all for patriotism. I love our country. I couldn't live if the, our country hadn't provided sanctuary to my family, to my parents and their and and their families fleeing other societies. But I've never felt comfortable in this kind of hyper patriotic, yes, America, love it or leave it perspective that some people have because of my background and because I don't fully fit in. And my guess is that most mixed race children have that experience where they're of many groups, but never in any group. Does that interest in history go back into your childhood? I was reading a lot of both historical novels and actual histories that were for children and then beyond when I was little. Is that kind of what your world was like? A absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. I, I used to read a lot of fiction, but historical fiction. And I was interested also in the history of philosophy, why people think the way they think. And, and I did a lot of speech and debate in high school. And one of the things I did for speech and debate was a lot of reading and philosophy and things of that sort. So I was, in a sense, doing history without knowing I was doing history until I went to college and had some real history courses where I realized history wasn't just reading a textbook. So Stanford, I assume it had some pretty good historians. Can you think of a moment where you, where 
exposure to real historians, real history writing, real analysis, you know, thoughtful people who have steeped their entire careers into learning about some topic or, or period or geography, where that changed you, where you say, oh, wow, this is something different? Absolutely. Uh, as a freshman at Stanford, as a, as a kid on scholarship, as the sort of odd kid out, right? I had, I had no money. I, I couldn't even visit the campus before I first the first day. You know, most kids, our kids, they go to these orientation events. I couldn't even afford to do that. I arrived on campus and I was put in a, um, I think they called it Western Civ then. Uh, we would just call it sort of a history survey course today. And it had some of their phenomenal professors, one who became my mentor and has remained a, a dear friend, David Kennedy. I was sitting in lectures that he gave and others and realizing these historical events that I had studied in textbooks, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, they were so fascinating to read about in their primary sources and to think about and debate the interpretations of these events and how they mattered for us today. And I say this to my students all the time, you find your metier, you find your field because you're, you're doing the work in it and you actually find that you want to do more of it, that it's not just a task that you have to get done. And, and I had that feeling my freshman year and then I became close to some of the faculty in that field as mentors and, and that put me on the path that I'm on now. You mentioned David Kennedy. How did a mentorship relationship develop there. That, it seems to be very key in a lot of academic careers to have people like that who, you know, you come to realize are human beings who can discuss ideas with you, who could point you the right directions, you know, smooth the path for you, et cetera. It's all of those things. And I had a lot of uh, smoothing I needed to be done for me. <laughs> we all <laughs> <You know>? do. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I remember I was sitting in David Kennedy's lectures and I, I thought, wow, I really want to go talk to him. And so I just went to his office and knocked on his door. The door was closed. I didn't know anything about office hours. You know, you're only supposed to go to someone's <laughs> office during office hours because otherwise they're doing their work. I just knocked on his door and I had a, I had a very heavy New York accent then, but he was so um, kind and so open. And I think he did three things for me early on. First, he helped me to, as you say, have a conversation partner to talk every, every week. Maybe we met for, I don't know, half an hour or so. Wow. And uh, it provided me a, an opportunity to, to talk through the issues. Uh, David helped me with my writing. Uh, I thought I was a good writer. I had been a debater. I had done well uh, in that context and others. But there's no substitute for someone sitting down and reading your prose and tearing it apart <laughs> and then working with you to fix it. There's no other way to learn to write. It's a one-on-one -on -one endeavor. And he put a lot of time into that, particularly when I was writing my thesis at university. And then the third thing is... He just gave me good advice on what it means to become a historian. Once you find what you're interested in, it's hard to know how you get from here to there. And he, he gave me a lot of help, a lot of advice on, on the small things, the small things that add up to the big things. He obviously could not have done that for every undergraduate. What was it, do you think, that he saw in you or why was he open to that intensive relationship? That's a great question. I'll just say from my experience being on the other end now as a professor, uh, there's nothing more enjoyable than a hardworking, enthusiastic student. There are plenty of students who come to my office, and I'm sure even more who would come to David's, uh, who are trying to be syncophantish and trying to get letters of recommendation and play the game. 
And of course, everyone does that. But when there's someone who's really serious, a young person who's really serious, uh, serious in their interest, but also serious about doing the work, for someone as a scholar who enjoys that, it, it's a great opportunity. And so I, I hope that's what it is. And I think the relationship developed in that way. You mentioned a senior project thesis. What was that at Stanford? So I did a uh, thesis on arms control policy in the 1950s and 60s when the first negotiations began to occur to try to limit the expansion of nuclear arsenals and a particular conference, the Surprise Attack Conference, that was part of an effort by the United States and the Soviet Union to limit the risks of an accidental use of nuclear weapons. And I did that project because I was interested in arms control, but also I found some new records, some new materials that no one had written about. And that was my thesis, and it was the first article I published in a journal. For me, and I think for a lot of people, even some historians, writing can be painful. The process of having to think is hard for most people. Did you suffer doing that or did you find enjoyment or both? Those are pretty monumental things and can be very intimidating to a lot of people to tackle a big paper like that. What was it like for you? It was hard. It's it's a big experience. You're right. You learn as a student in high school and in college to write short papers where you do a lot of work for a week and then overnight <laughs> you write 20 pages and then that's all. Everything you know is in those pages, right? But a larger project that involves many, many weeks and months of research and then working through your research, as you say, thinking about it at a deeper level where 90% of what you research is on the cutting room floor and 10% is what you use and putting it together in a narrative and figuring out how to frame it. These are really difficult things. And and what I'd say about writing, I think, is I have a love-hate relationship with it. It's something I love doing when it's going well, and it is torturous when it's not going well. And the other thing about writing, and this is what I learned particularly from David and, and thereafter, is uh, writing is about rewriting. You write and you rewrite, you write and you rewrite. So it was difficult. Uh, it was difficult writing a thesis because I thought I knew how to write and I realized I didn't. And it was difficult writing a thesis because so much work has to go into the writing and the rewriting. And that's that's true with every project. It's a, such a fulfilling, worthwhile endeavor, a privilege to spend this time thinking and writing about a topic. But boy, is it hard. Do you have any particular advice you give to your students when they're struggling with such things? I do. I don't know how helpful it is, but I do. Uh, uh, first thing is you've got to sit at the computer. You, most people stop writing because they get frustrated and they, they get up. And you have to stick with it. You have to mark off time every day or four days a week. Blocks of time, two hours, three hours, when you're going to sit and write. You can't do it just on the side. You can't fit it in. It's always the thing that will get cut out of your schedule when you're busy. So that's one thing. Uh, second, I think you need to spend a lot of time as you're writing, thinking through what is it you are trying to say. Don't just sit down and write. Think as you're writing. What am I trying to say? Fewer words are better. More direct is better. Avoid fancy language. The more direct the writing, the better. And then the other thing I'd say is it's really important to have someone to read your drafts, someone you trust, someone who's often not in your field. So my wife, a friend, whoever it is, to get feedback and honest feedback. 
but also supportive feedback. You want someone to be critical and supportive at the same time. I think that my mantra was, what the heck am I trying to say? Yes. <laughs> yes. And that's where another reader is helpful because it's clear in your mind, but it's not always clear on the or paper. Or it's not clear in your mind. And well, that's writing true. is that process of figuring out what is what you're trying to say. That's absolutely true. That's actually one of the misnomers people have, which is that you research and then you write. You do a lot of research and reading, then you start writing. And while you're writing, you're still researching because as you're writing, you realize you didn't know what you thought you knew. Yeah. How did your career proceed post Stanford? So I went to Ohio University for a year and a half to do a master's. And then I went to Yale University to do my PhD. I had wonderful mentors in both places as well. And then I was fortunate enough as I was finishing my PhD to get hired at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the history department there as a tenure track assistant professor. And that was a wonderful place to be a professor. I started there, believe it or not, one week before 9-11. And I was the person doing the history of politics and foreign policy. So immediately what I was doing was, was important on campus. And uh, I was there for 10 years. We thought we were going to stay there forever. Our children were born in Madison. And then the University of Texas made us an offer. And we had had other offers and had not moved, but it was about the right time. And what I liked about the University of Texas is it has, first of all, Austin is great, but also has a great history department and a great public policy school. And I'm in both places. And that's really where my work is, the mix of history and policy. And so we moved down here in 2011. Gosh, it's more than 10 years now. It seems like just yesterday. That's how we came to this moment. Did you find students any different in the two schools? Great question. In general, no. I think the students at uh, our great public universities are some of our best students because they're, they're top high school students. They come from really good families and from all around the, the respective states. And they work hard and they don't have a chip on their shoulder. Some of the students at other more fancy private schools have a little more of a chip on their shoulder. So in some ways, the students at a place like UT or University of Wisconsin are more educatable. I find them delightful to work with. A couple of differences, you know, the students in uh, Wisconsin tend to be a little less international than the students in Texas, believe it or not. But the students in Wisconsin often come from really, really good small town high schools. And so their basics are pretty good. University of Texas, the students, it's very hard to get into UT because it's such a big state and so competitive. The students are really good, but often they have holes because the schools they've come out of are much more uneven, I think. What is interesting to me is that at both UW and UT, I've had very few students who really come from rural families. Most come from small towns and cities. It's interesting. There's a, there's a large swath of the population in both states that, that doesn't get touched by the universities, and that's a real challenge. What do you think the chip on the shoulder is with kids at elite schools? I think it's that they think they know everything already. Oh, they don't. They, they don't, right. <laughs> uh, and, and um, I, you know, my, my, my son's about to go to Yale and we've, you know, he, 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 he's, I don't think he has a chip on his shoulder, but there is by nature in those, around those schools, there is a, a presumption that somehow you are so special that sometimes you're too cool for school. And I'm not, I'm not ragging on those schools at all. I'm just yeah. saying it's a different attitude. And my experience when I, so when I was a grad student at, student at Yale, I taught some undergraduate courses and 
there were a number of students who just felt they were, and I had account, encountered this at Stuyvesant in New York too, you know, kids who felt they were smarter than the game, that they'd figured it out. And, uh, and, 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 and they weren't always there to learn. That's the thing. It doesn't, doesn't mean they weren't talented, but they weren't always there to learn. Well, there, what concerns me, and I don't know if you see this, people who are almost treating school as vocational education, you know, and, and not so much about becoming educated and learning about the world and broadening your mind and building your skills and your ability to think, things like that. And, and that's why Zachary wants to go to Yale is because he wants to be around people who are intellectual, who want to read classics and learn languages. But the vocational stuff, that's system. I mean, we have probably more of that at public universities. I mean, I have so many students who come into my office and say, well, how am I going to make money as a historian? I, I, you know, I don't think you are, but that's not the point. College is not about getting skills to make money. It's about becoming a better person. Yeah. I mean, they, it's so much like, sh- should I be majoring in computer science because then I can get a job at, you know, whatever. It drives me crazy. Even yeah, me though I too. majored in computer science. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I majored in computer science, it wasn't seen as a gateway to a job at Facebook or Google or something. It, I was actually just really interested in programming and learning about it. So, Well, and I would imagine, you know, I mean, when I was a grad student there and even at Stanford, th- that was a small major. I mean, I was at Stanford with with the Peter Thiels, unfortunately, and the Sergey Brins. That was our group. We were in class of 94, just when Silicon Valley was taking off. It was still a minority of people. It, yeah. It was 18 people, I think, my year. I was 88. Wow. I'm going, to tell, I'm going to share that with my son. That's a great story. That's a great story. So what was the academic work, the writing, the research that you're doing now as you move from Wisconsin to Texas? What are, what are you working on? What's your output sort of? At Wisconsin, I had been doing more work on American foreign policy. My first few books and a lot of my articles and things I, I did to put together for tenure were all really related to uh, understanding the history of American foreign policy. I spent a lot of time actually writing a book about Henry Kissinger. I spent a lot of time with Henry Kissinger writing that book, which was an experience unto itself. I bet. As I moved to UT, I was becoming more and more interested in the domestic side of things. I would have said in 2011, 2012, as I was working on a book on nation building, I was interested in the ways in which domestic politics influenced foreign policy. But the more I was studying the history of American politics, and then the more I was living through the Obama and Trump years, the more focused I became on the domestic side of things. Let me just go back to that, because the Kissinger thing, I I can't let that hang out there. How do you end up with access to Kissinger in writing a book about him. I mean, I know you have these mentors who are serious students of foreign policy, I assume must be somehow through that, but that's unusual. Yeah, actually what it was was a combination of that and the first book I wrote, which was my dissertation at Yale on American foreign policy and protest movements in the 1960s and 70s and the origins of detente, uh, had a big section on Kissinger, of course, and I didn't know him from Adam. I'd done a lot of research on him. And one of my mentors at Yale, uh, John Gaddis, gave Kissinger a copy of the book, and he read it or read into it and contacted me quite literally out of the blue. I literally received an email message from a name I didn't recognize. The subject line said, from Henry Kissinger. And of course, I thought it was someone playing a joke on me. Uh, And I went in and met with him. uh, Once I realized it was a serious email message, 
And he pretty much yelled at me for an hour and a half. How could I say all these things that were wrong? It was fairly critical of him, the first book. Still a, that, an amazing experience, I assume. <laughs> yeah, amazing is not the word that comes to mind, but yeah. <laughs> Did you feel cowed? I, I felt uh, I, I felt confused. Why was yeah. he, you know, why does he care even? Why is he punching down like this? <laughs> exactly, exactly. A lot of people view him kind of as like war criminal that followed the foreign policy of the United States in the early 1970s. How do you view, view him? I don't view him as a war criminal. I view him instead as a incredibly talented and accomplished, but also deeply flawed policymaker. And I see him as someone who manifests all the accomplishments and all the dark sides, all the terrible things that American foreign policy did, as it was also doing some very good things as well. And that's exactly what my book is about. When I met with him, I had actually started a project writing more about him because there were more materials coming out. I became interested in him. And I was interested in his being a German Jewish immigrant because of my own immigrant experience. Back to where we started, I think my own biography brought a different perspective. And I had a grant to do research on him. He told me I was wasting my time to go to Germany to learn about his early past. But I did that. And when I was there, we were there with my daughter, who was a little baby then, uh, for the summer. He happened to make a visit to his hometown while I was there. Oh, wow. And I kind of won his respect then because I was there. I was speaking German. I was doing research in the archives, which no journalist had done. So I think in his mind, that made me a serious historian. And so that's how our relationship began. We, and then I had about a dozen interviews with him after that. It was never an authorized biography, but I spent a lot of time trying to understand him. And, and my book basically argues, and it resonates with the new book, actually, <laughs> that Kissinger comes of age in Nazi Germany as a Jew and then is an immigrant, a refugee to the United States. And he's someone who believes power must be used to protect order, but he is deeply skeptical of democracy. And I think that's the way I understand American foreign policy after World War II. We do a lot to create order in different parts of the world, sometimes for good, but often in ways that undermine democracy. And I think that fear of democracy, that belief that democracy can actually harm the things we care about, whoever the we is in the case, is something that, that actually goes back to civil war and comes forward to, to today. It is a actually a complex topic because sometimes democracy can undo itself. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's what Kissinger witnessed. I mean, he is, uh, I describe this in detail in the book. The book is more than half on his early life. He comes of age in a community where Jews are separated from non-Jews, but they live pretty well. His father's a gymnasium lehrer, which is a respected teaching position in Germany. And then he sees it all come undone. And his explanation is that uh, most Germans didn't care. And when life got bad, they were happy to attack the Jews. And he's fearful of any crowd. He's fearful of any mob, of any populist activity, which is so ironic considering then that so many of the things we do overseas in our foreign policy undermine these grassroots democratic activists that we would otherwise want to empower. Yeah. What's the origin story of Civil War by Other Means, your current book? So I wrote a book in the 2015-2016 period, a book that was published in 2017 called The Impossible Presidency, which was very much about why presidents fail. Here's the question in that book, how can you be the most powerful person in the world and still fail more than you succeed? And of course, that's part of the answer, that presidents, as they get more powerful, the power actually undermines their ability to get things done. It's very much an Obama book, isn't it, right? How can you be so talented and yet not accomplish so many of the things? And it's a history of the presidency showing that. Um, 
when I finished that book, and this is always how it is, one book leads to another, one project leads to another. When I finished that book, I, I was struck by two things that I hadn't sufficiently analyzed, I thought, um, that were becoming more and more evident to me in Trump's America. One was the way in which the presidency and American power seemed to be conditioned by certain habits of behavior and certain institutional biases that time and again, regardless of whether you were Democrat or Republican, seemed to push our policy in certain directions towards racial inequality, towards the acceptance of violence by different groups. And then the second thing uh, was writing this longer history of the presidency, how resonant the Civil War remained long after the Civil War was over. I came to believe that in some ways the Civil War is more important still to American politics than World War II, even at the end of the 20th century. And so those were the two insights that led me into this book. And I was hoping to write a book about democratic renewals, how democracy renews itself. But I, I became more and more struck as I did the research on the ways in which the challenges of the Civil War continue to challenge our democracy today. And that's really what the book is about. I don't think it's widely known by people who don't study it that we kind of made progress towards a multiracial democracy in the wake of the Civil War and then went backwards and went backwards for a really long time. For some reason, I think that's still surprising to people who kind of have a linear progressive idea about the country. But most of the focus of your book is sort of from Lincoln's assassination to Garfield's. And it's sort of a door opening and a lot of change happening. And then sort of the political realities that drive us back out of fixing the South on that dimension, right? There's so much in a history book. I don't think that a lot of the people that I talk to who read a lot of history, who are really embedded in politics. This is one that ought to be read because there's so much that makes you rethink what's happening right now. First of all, I think it's probably useful to just say a succinct version of like what happened in that period. And then I have some questions in follow-up. Sure, sure. Great. Thank you. And thanks for what, what you said about the book means a lot to me because that's exactly the aim. Um, there's a lot that's new in here, of course, new research. But actually, I wrote this book because of exactly what you said. I think one of the big problems in our society is ignorance, historical ignorance. And I don't think that's because I want everyone to be a historian. It's because if you misunderstand this part of our history, you misunderstand what our country has become. I think the reason most Americans don't understand the alternatives that existed after the Civil War is because there's been an active effort to discourage people to think about those alternatives because they would raise criticisms of, about the world we live in now. And I'll say this as an opening to summarizing many of the key points in the book. In 1868, 1869, there were more African Americans elected to office than there would be again until 1968. That's counterintuitive. Americans think, as you say, that over time, we slowly but surely became a more open society. That's not true at all. And recognizing that there was a time when people of more diverse background were engaged and participated in politics shows that there was an alternative way to structure our democracy from the one we have. So the book begins with Lincoln's assassination 
And with the death of John Wilkes Booth, who, of course, is Lincoln's assassin, and a dual martyrdom. I wasn't taught this in New York. I was taught about Lincoln's assassination, but not how Booth was treated as a hero in part of the country. And that should resonate with today, two different realities. Uh, I spent a lot of time, and I quote a lot of this in the book, reading newspapers from the South at the time. And you realize Booth was treated as the hero, and Lincoln was treated as the tyrant, What Booth did was seen as an act of heroism. Again, two realities. That's not a new phenomenon in 2022 or 2023. And from there, um, what the book really chronicles are the efforts by Lincoln's successors, the Republican Party, to restructure American society. Because after the Civil War, so many things are possible. It is a second American revolution. And early on, there is a great deal of progress, which you referred to, in creating a basis for voting rights, uh, civil rights legislation. It's not just about race. It's about economic opportunity, about opening space for the remaking of American society in a more participatory way. The first impediment to that is Andrew Johnson, who succeeds Lincoln when Lincoln's assassinated. And then the second impediment is the organization of Southern Democrats as a party of the Confederacy. They've lost the war, but they in some ways win the peace. I write a lot about Southerners who don't even surrender, who go to Mexico and then come back. Uh, Grant becomes president. Grant actually has the power of the office and Congress to try to make change, but his own party gives up. And this is an important lesson for us today. For Northern Republicans who won the war by 1868, 1869, you know what? They're tired of fighting these battles. They've won. They want to move on. They want to make money in the West. And they give up on the South. And then the last part of the book is then how uh, you get a slow diminishment of Northern Republican efforts to remake the country and the opposite, the spread of certain Southern Confederate ways, not just within the South, but into the North, into the West. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of progress nonetheless. Slavery is ended. The American country does become, as a polity, more inclusive than it was in the 1850s, but it's nowhere near where it could have been. And two things we embed in our society, restrictions on voting and participation that we still have today. We have some of the worst voting rights in the world today, and we've inherited them. We're still arguing over those laws, and we embed violence in our society. We become one of the most violent democracies with violence toward one another, violence used to intimidate, violence used to support power. That's what the Ku Klux Klan is all about. That's what the Proud Boys are. I think there's a direct line from the Ku Klux Klan described in my book to the Proud Boys and these other extreme groups today. I've been through this history a number of times in my own studies, but I'd forgotten a lot of it. And I'd particularly forgotten the specificity of the massacres and the incredibly violent intimidation of African Americans and white supporters of theirs in the South. And it's just gruesome and difficult to read and sort of scary because it reminds you about what can happen when there's local popular support for something egregious like white supremacy. How does the violence there at that time help you think about the now? Because we're not seeing quite that, even with January 6th. No, 
No, I don't think it's fair to say we've returned to this period. No, no one who thinks actually seriously about history believes that history does not repeat itself. But the way I think about it is history layers our world. So we're operating at the top right now of a set of layers, but the, the history is still below us. It's like archaeology. And those lower layers in the soil, they still affect what blooms in the garden and what doesn't bloom in the garden. And, and so the violence is not the same. No way. I describe in the book, for instance, the massacres in Memphis in 1866, which are just horrible. But how does it relate to today? A lot of this violence, uh, not its most extreme versions, but its daily versions, the use of a gun and an organized militia to discourage people from voting, the use of violence to protect certain property and not other property, the bullying, that I think gets embedded and normalized in our society. And so many of the organizations that become politically active in bringing people together, particularly angry people together in our society, have violence as an ethos for what they do, as an attitude. And that violence is used often to intimidate women, to intimidate other outsider groups. I open the book actually with one of these contemporary groups, the Delaware Grays, which is the organization in Delaware, Southern Delaware, where the gentleman who carried the Confederate flag into the Capitol on January 6th that he belonged to, as far as I can tell, they haven't killed anyone, but they march and they buy guns and they buy Confederate flags and they go around and organize themselves as men around this stuff. And they are trying to intimidate. They're explicit. They want to intimidate Democrats. They don't want any Democrats in their neighborhoods. Right. So this is violence. that's normalized in our society. And some people tell them to stand down and stand by. Yep. Yep. That's the problem. And what's really dangerous and it is not new to Donald Trump. What is dangerous is when you have figures in pl places of political and economic power who encourage this violence. Andrew Johnson did that as president, too. Ben Tillman, as governor and senator from South Carolina, did that. One of the points of this book is to say that Donald Trump is playing a very old game. He's just added Twitter and social media to the old game that's been used before. The people who structured the Constitution were so worried about a number of things like faction and putting in separation of powers to make sure that no one could take us in the wrong direction too badly. But there seems to be this super challenge when the person in charge, the president or the governor, isn't of good faith. And I think the worry right now in the progressive world is that should we elect a person like Trump again, or DeSantis maybe, who isn't necessarily operating in democratic good faith, that there are ways to use the system to bias it, to, to lock it up for that party for a long time, and maybe take us well away from democracy. When you look at the examples of the 1870s, 80s, 90s, and you look at the threat that Trump posed while he was in office and, and is still posing in that kind of ethos, how are you thinking about like the vulnerability of our country in that in those terms? I, I, I think that is exactly what we should be worried about, because I think that has happened repeatedly. That's one of the points of my book, right? The reason people don't want us to understand, as you said earlier, that there were alternatives in 1868, 1869, is because they want us to accept what are very undemocratic 
monopolist outcomes today for certain political actors. And you need not look any farther than the state I'm in now, Texas, to see that. The reason that we have a Senator Ted Cruz and a Governor Greg Abbott, who are clearly unpopular around the state, is they've locked in power for the Republican Party. And the Republican Party in the state of Texas chooses the leaders of the state, not the people. How do they do that? Well, one thing is voter suppression. Texas is a low voter turnout state, and it's a low voter turnout state because the state makes it hard for people to vote. The state discourages people from voting. I'll give you just one example. In Texas, you must register to vote. And by the way, voter registration is something created after the Civil War. You didn't have to register to vote before the Civil War. I don't think you have to register to file an IRS tax return, right? Unless you're Donald Trump, maybe you don't have to file one then, right? But the idea of forcing you to register to vote is a way to discourage you from voting. In Texas, you have to register to vote one month before the election. So every November of an even year, I'll have a student who comes to me November 1st and says, oh, I turned 18. I want to go vote. I'll have to say, sorry, you had to register a month ago. But if you want to buy a gun, go right ahead. So we have all sorts of laws of this kind that have been used since this period by those in power to keep themselves in power. The flaw of our democracy is that it gives those with the control of power and control of institutions the ability to change the laws in bad faith to make it harder for someone else to unseat them. That is exactly what I fear would happen if we had a return of a Donald Trump or someone like Donald Trump and control of Congress. And we know he tried to do that. This is the whole argument against mail-in voting, against early voting, against all of these things. One of the the complex things about the book is that it's when it's recounting that exact ability to change the laws or to overstep them, it happens for good purposes as well as bad, right? Like Lincoln is clearly arrogating more power than a president had before. The Republican Congress is changing the size of the Supreme Court to make it smaller and then enlarging again when they can, they know who's going to make the next appointment from Johnson forward, like sending the army in after the war is over to protect African-Americans. These are clearly good and necessary uses of power that maybe if the other side was doing exactly the same thing would be awful. And I like how clear your history is about understanding that and understanding the sort of power relations and how things flip over sometimes. And each side is sometimes looking for more power from the presidency or less. Talk about the political realities then and how there's a continuity now. I think you're absolutely right. So Abraham Lincoln has to do things that he knows are unconstitutional to win the Civil War. And his argument, his, his wonderful phrase, Lincoln puts things, even though he had the least education of many of the figures we're talking about, he, he, he mastered the English language. We talked about writing. There's someone who learned how to write. Lincoln said, you know, I, I, I will not cut off the arm to save the hand. And so sometimes I have to do things that are inappropriate for the hand to do because I'm trying to save the arm. And what he meant was he was going to violate due process at times. He was going to use the military in ways that went beyond what were constitutional assumptions about that and on and on. And the problem, of course, is that in bringing all that power into the presidency for good purpose, to save the union, to save the arm, 
he created opportunities for his successor, Andrew Johnson, to misuse that power, as Andrew Johnson did. Andrew Johnson is responsible for misusing the pardoning power. He pardons all of these Confederate leaders who then come back and become, as I write in the book, become the leaders of the states <laughs> again after they've lost the war. And this is the real dilemma of politics that fascinates me as a historian and a citizen, right? That at times you have to go beyond constitutional limitations, but there's a deep risk that if you do that in bad faith or someone inherits that in bad faith, it can destroy the very purposes you're pursuing. This is exactly what Franklin Roosevelt faces with the Depression and World War II. What do I take from that? Well, first of all, we need leaders of good faith. Second, we need to make sure that those moments are rare. It's dangerous in any society. We've seen this in many others where you're operating under emergency procedures for a long time. And then third, when we do allow one part of our system to take on more power, we need to then immediately push back by empowering other parts of our society. I think this is what Nancy Pelosi understood. I think you could argue that Nancy Pelosi did things as speaker that went beyond the normal power of a speaker. But she had to do that to counteract Donald Trump, and I think she was heroic in doing that. I think the Republicans in Congress did not do enough in 1866-67 to counteract Andrew Johnson's misuse of power. They should have actually convicted him and thrown him out of office. They missed by one, yeah. By, but they might, by one vote, and he bribed. yeah. yeah his way out of it. One of the points I make in the book is our impeachment process doesn't work. There's got to be a way to throw out a president who's acting in bad faith. And I would like to see us have an, I don't want to make it easier so it happens willy-nilly. Right. Because otherwise we got to get, you know, a, a Congress impeaching someone who shouldn't be impeached. Right. Yeah. Right. But but maybe that's a better bias. I mean, I look honestly at someone like Clarence Thomas now and what's clearly inappropriate that his wife did. Right. So you have the wife of the Supreme Court justice lobbying to overturn an election and then he's ruling on issues related to that that come before him. There needs to be more congressional power to investigate, force him to recuse himself. Yeah. And then that could be misused. But that's why it's a constant balance and rebalancing. The Constitution has to evolve. I think one of the key progressive points we all have to believe in is that different moments require the pursuit of the same values in different ways. And we cannot use some sort of rigid constitutionalism to empower the bad actors from the past. I was kind of struck by when Hayes and Tilden have that tied election and it goes to the House and a commission and and finally a terrible compromise to let Hayes win it. But it seemed like both of those candidates acknowledged the flaws in the system in a way that our current ex-president, Mr. Trump, didn't. And it seemed like there was more good faith there in their character. Did you see it that way? Yes, I, I was actually surprised. I, I expected otherwise, and I spent a lot of time reading Hayes' diary, which I recommend to people. I mean, it's a, it's a diary of day-to-day, his thinking about that contested election. So those who are interested in this, you can look that up online. Yeah, it was fascinating, the quotes you pulled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then Tilden also has a diary of sorts, and then there are some memoirs, etc. And uh, what you find is both of these men, first of all, were hesitant to declare victory when they weren't sure they had won. 
And then they believed that it would be wrong if one of them were seen as stealing the election. I think they acted in good faith. I think they were also men fundamentally of integrity. They had different political points of view. But in that sense, the party system worked because these were two men who were chosen largely because those around them saw them as men of integrity. And when you have a system now that doesn't vet people in that way, that's a real problem. Now, don't get me wrong. Andrew Johnson was not a man of integrity. We had people who were equally corrupt in that time as we do today. That's not a new phenomenon. But we were fortunate in 1876 that at least at the top of the two tickets, we had men who had a sense of self-restraint. Let's put it that way. And Hayes acknowledges in his inaugural speech, I guess it was, that that like people could see two different sides of this election. You just can't imagine Trump saying something like that. No, no. I mean, Hayes was quoting Jefferson in 1800, which was basically we're one country, but we have two very different points of view. And I think Tilden would have said the same thing. What's extraordinary about someone like Donald Trump, again, which echoes more Andrew Johnson, is, you know, his people are the good people, the majority of people, right? It was always the majority against Trump. That majority, somehow they are corrupted and wrong and they deserve nothing. Tell me how you viewed Trump as he ascends to power. Like he gets into the primary, he says the outrageous things that he says to garner attention and finds a a vein of support with that. What were you thinking as you watched that, as you're working on this kind of effort? You know, it it was uh, going back to old nightmares. I had a difficult time as a kid growing up in New York as from an immigrant family, relatively poor background. I, I mean, on the one hand, I was fortunate. On the other hand, it, it wasn't a great way to live. And New York City was not a great place in the 1980s. This is the New York of Donald Trump and early Rudy Giuliani and Edward Koch and the Central Park murders and all this sort of stuff. I thought that garbage we had gotten out of our system. And it was sort of like the garbage had been put on a barge from New York and then somehow was taken on by the rest of the country. And what is it that that really bothered me about it? And it, it really influenced this book, the ways in which People can be persuaded of the worst things because they think it serves their interests. Richard Hofstetter wrote about this in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, and I think it's still some of the best work. He called this status anxiety, that people who fear they're losing power and that some other group is coming up, they will adopt the worst, most violent, most hateful rhetoric to try to hold on to power. And at first, they don't believe it. But then over time, they convince themselves. And I think you have so many people in our society, post-2008 in particular, who fear that they're losing control. They own the hardware store in town, and the hardware store can't keep up anymore with Walmart and with Amazon, and they want to blame someone. And Trump played to that in the same way he played to the kind of white anxiety about crime in New York City when I grew up, and he was you know, a, a loudmouth about this stuff. And, and I think that's part of what we see in, in the period after the Civil War. You have to empathize with them to some extent. These are white landholders in the South who lost all their wealth. They lost their slaves and they lost all their Confederate dollars, which became worthless. And they're angry and they want to hold on to status. And so they'll believe the worst things. And that is the worst kind of demagoguery. But our democracy is susceptible to that. How do you understand Trump? There's some understanding by analogy that you're putting forward with Andrew Johnson, 
but the parallel isn't very complete. Tell me a little bit about how you understand him and his presidency with the lens that you bring to it. Well, what is unique about his presidency is we have never had someone in that office who is so completely, totally, and utterly about himself. Uh, by nature, presidents are narcissistic, right? To, to run for this office, particularly in the 20th century. But even, I mean, Grant becomes a narcissist, right? Lincoln probably did too. You have all this power. H- how can you not, right? There's something psychologically abnormal about that. But, but Trump takes that abnormality to such an extreme. Every president, even Andrew Johnson, believed that there was some higher cause some higher purpose. I think Andrew Johnson was protecting poor white people as he saw it, right? Trump does not care about anyone other than Trump. This has always been true. This was true when he was operating in New York City in the 80s. And the combination of that pathological narcissism with the power the presidency has in the 21st century, that is a nuclear combination that was only barely controlled. And where do you see this, for example? I think the relationship with Vladimir Putin. I don't think this is someone who's actually been bought. Putin might have bribed him. Who knows? But I think actually the issue is in the short run, his intelligence agencies tell him something that's actually not something he wants to do, doesn't serve his interests. Putin says things that serve his personal interests. He thinks Putin is better. That's all. That's what drives him. It's very, very simple. I think he was willing to see his vice president killed for the sake of holding on to power. I think as I've looked at the materials from January 6th, I don't think he even was just allowing it. I think he would have been happy. The more violence, the better. He likes Putin. And I think he admires that kind of toughness as maybe he would see it. What I don't really understand is Trump's alignment with the Confederate vestiges or something. How is this northern real estate developer who has racial issues, how is that the side he picks, right? I don't know that that was clear that that was coming, but who are his allies right now? It's what used to be really the fringe and now unfortunately has grown into a very fat fringe or more so, right? What's going on there? I I don't think he has any particular personal connection to the Confederacy. I don't think he cares, but I think he sees those who like the flag, the Confederate flag, and those who identify with the Confederacy, like the people I talk about at the beginning of the book, he sees them as his people, and this is marketing. This is marketing. This is riling them up. This is, you know, selling more of his wares, and he'll abandon that as soon as it helps him as well. But the people who tend to be anti-Confederate are the people who tend to not like him. So he wants to undermine them. Do you think there's a um, attraction to white supremacy in him? Yeah, I think there is because it serves his interest. Yeah, I think he one of the ways he justifies his power and one of the things he sees in himself, I think he sees himself as a superior person because he's white. He said this a few times. I have superior genetics. What does that mean? So I think he's a white supremacist in the most basic way, which is a belief that he's a Trump supremacist. He's a Trump supremacist (laughs) and Trump is white. Yes, absolutely. And I think he got this from his father, Fred. And I think it's just been taken to, again, a pathological perspective. There's a sense he has. He's a male chauvinist. He's a white supremacist. But it's all personal for him. It's not ideological. It's just that he's superior and anything that's good for him and the people who like him is good. And anything that's bad for him and the people who like him is bad. 
Tell me a little bit about how you view the recent events around the election of the next Speaker of the House. I've been watching that closely, as I know you have and, and, and others have. And first of all, let's say that uh, this does return us to exactly the era of the book. In 1923, we have a contested speaker's race. But other than that, it's not just 100 years. It's 150 years, 170 years. It's the period right before the Civil War where we see repeated problems in getting a speaker elected for exactly the same reason we're seeing now, where one of the two parties has a faction that refuses to compromise. Then they were refusing to compromise on slavery. Now they're refusing to compromise, I'm sorry to say, on white supremacy. What is it that the Freedom Caucus refuses to recognize? They refuse to recognize that we as a country have to invest in things that help people other than a very small number, right? They're anti-government. What do they really mean by anti-government? They're anti-spending on public education. They're anti-spending on infrastructure. They're anti-spending on healthcare. All the things that disproportionately benefit the disadvantaged, those who are not already on their own. I'm not sure if that hangs that well, because the Republicans of not that long ago, who were quite different, I think, than the Republicans of right now, were also opposed to that kind of spending. I think there was much more clarity, at least in your telling of the history of what motivated the Democratic Party, which was then the party of white supremacy. I'm not so clear about what is motivating the Republicans of right now, the fringe that's holding this up or that supported Trump. I'm not even sure that they are articulating that to each other. Uh, that's fair. That's fair. I, I, I agree with that. And I, I, I should humbly say that, yeah, there are parts of it I don't understand either. But I will say that I think the white supremacy is necessary, if not sufficient, to understand them which is to say that that they continually align themselves with Trump. They continually align themselves with attacks on some made-up boogeyman called critical race theory. They continually create imagery of the other side as darker, non-American. I mean, the immigration issue, let's talk about that. That's a big issue for the Freedom Caucus, right? I live in Austin, Texas. I'm close to the border. Austin is one of the fastest growing, most prosperous cities in the United States now because of immigration. On any given day, you know this better than I do, there's a shortage of computer programmers in Austin. Where do they come from? South Asia and Mexico, educated somewhere else, brought in here. We cannot live without immigration in Texas. Uh, yet there is this view still that immigrants are these, what did, what did Trump call them? Horrible people. He used worse words that I don't want to repeat. Coming across the border, and I was just watching in the house, uh, and the first day of McCarthy's loss <laughs> for speaker, they kept bringing up the immigration, the open border. We have an open border. Everyone's coming in, right? How can you view that as anything other than a racist argument, right? And I do think that motivates them. I'll tell you, in the state of Texas, by the way, our, our governor took COVID money that was supposed to go to schools, stole it, and used it for border stuff. It's not a complete explanation at all, but they're the most extreme on that issue. You refer to this issue as kind of an unfinished fight, right? We haven't yet fully incorporated some parts of our population into the democracy. And it's probably a fight that you can never fully finish. And at the end, you say something about digging up the roots and pulling out the rot, right? And you make some policy prescriptions, but we have such 
screwed up politics right now. The, the Republican Party has gone so off the rails. Every election is tight, just like it was back in those days. I couldn't believe 2,000 votes separated a presidential election, right? How do we fix this? So what my book is trying to argue is that the, the most important thing we can do is actually look at the history that still influences our institutions, not just the ideology and the actors. I'm less concerned with what Matt Getz says. I don't want to hear what Matt Getz has to say and what Marjorie Taylor Greene, but the institutions that allow them to get power. And the institutions embed some of this history. When we can, let's focus on freeing our institutions of this bad history. What does that mean? Changing a system of voting that's 19th century. Changing an electoral college that's 18th century. I mean, the point I'm really making in my book is we're the greatest democracy in the world, we think, and yet we're stuck in 19th century white supremacist ways of doing things. And these are institutional. They're not just ideological. Sometimes we don't see them because we have people of good faith who don't actually exploit the institutions. We've seen this since January 6th. We're using an 1871 law, the Anti-Ku Klux Klan Act, to prosecute people who broke into Congress. But yet, if someone on the east side of Austin is dealing drugs today, we have new drug laws that we use to go after them. Why haven't we updated our laws against political extremism? Why haven't we updated our voting? Why haven't we updated the way we fund public education? We still fund it the way we did. Well, we're trying to do a lot of that stuff, yeah. right? We haven't been able to get a big enough majority. Like Biden had a lot of that stuff on the table. Like his predecessors in the 19th century, a lot of times he was trying to do something, but there wasn't enough votes or there wasn't enough persuasion. I mean, some people really are mad at Biden for trying to get the voting stuff fixed for so long at the beginning of his term because they thought it was never going to make it. It's always the political reality. I, I agree. I know. So my, my, my argument is not that progressives haven't tried, but my argument is that we need to make sure we educate a new generation to focus on those issues. I, I will admit I'm skeptical of identity politics because I don't think identity politics gets us forward, right? By simply saying we have to do more for my group, because even if I'm correct, my group was treated poorly. Throwing more money out of the limousine at different groups doesn't actually solve this broader problem. We need structural institutional change. And a lot of that can happen at the state level. So here's what I'm looking to see now in a state like Arizona, which for the first time in what, since 1973 in 49 years, has all Democratic leadership. They have a Democratic governor. They have a Democratic secretary of state, a Democratic attorney general. Can they make structural changes in the ways they do voting, in the ways they manage public education? They have an opportunity that should be prioritized, structural changes in the way things happen. That example of the Supreme Court getting its size changed in the 19th century, I talked to a number of people on this podcast who are advocating expansion of the court to remedy the situation. The court, not that long ago, finished gutting the Voting Rights Act, more or less, the exact final act that helped fix the century of not allowing African-Americans to vote in the South, et cetera. They are right now a political actor on the wrong side. What do you think about remedies around the court? As I said before, when one branch or one institution oversteps its bounds or uses excessive power in ways that are not in good faith, it is incumbent on the other institutions to step in. So I am not for the Congress willy-nilly adding a judge here or there. 
but let's create a new system. I would make an argument just again in terms of modernizing the court. We've had nine members of the court since the 1870s. Before that, as I talk about in my book, we changed the number quite often. Congress did it. No one said it was unconstitutional. The volume of stuff has just increased. The volume of cases. We should increase the size of the court and create a system like we have for appeals courts, where we have, let's say, 20 judges, each appointed for a 20-year term or whatever, and cases then get randomly assigned to a group of nine of them. So you can't game the system either. That would be fairer. It would deal with the volume of issues. It would be perfectly appropriate for Congress to do something like that. Congress should grow in size. Every decade until the 1920s, we increased the size of the House. I was just in Germany this last summer. The Bundestag, which is uh, for a country one-fourth the size of the United States, has 900 members. They function pretty well. We'd have better representation if we increased. We have to adjust our institutions, and the court has to be part of that. Super interesting to talk to you about the book. I just want to ask you a couple of questions about some of your other activities Sure. before I wear you completely out here. Oh, no. <laughs> you have a podcast or two. Yes. Tell me about them. So we do a podcast called This Is Democracy. We do it every week. And it began in 2017, late 2017, when I wrote my prior book, The Impossible Presidency, and my son, who was then 15, said, you know, Dad, if you want young people to read your stuff, you need to do a podcast. So we created a podcast through the University of Texas. Each week, Zachary and I bring on someone to talk about a policy issue with a historical perspective. We've had on people like Samantha Power. We've had on people like Susan Nyman, Lawrence Wright. And we take an issue in our society today, like anti-Semitism or democratic deficits. And we talk about the history of the issue, and then we talk about things we can do. It's designed to be very positive. And Zachary opens each episode with a poem on the topic. And the goal is to bring the history alive and show how history matters, as we've discussed today, for policy. What do you get out of that? I love it. Uh, first of all, it's a wonderful father-son activity. <laughs> yeah, that strikes me. I, I, you know, just, I have two daughters, but, but it just strikes me as so lovely to have that with your offspring and to have a kid who is up for it, right? The both of those is, is just wonderful. It's, and, and we've, I, I don't think we've missed a week. You know, we sometimes take a holiday week off, but uh, Zachary does it. We'll have to figure out. When his sister went to college, it was a big transition for us. Now with him going to college, it's going to be a big transition. I don't know how we're going to keep the podcast going. But it's a joy to do that. But I'll tell you something else. Every week, it forces me to prepare for a few hours and then spend 45 minutes talking to someone interesting about a topic, not about partisanship, but really having a serious, thoughtful, optimistic conversation. And it's therapy for me, and I think for some of our listeners too. And doing it now has just become part of life for us. I feel the same way about mine, and um, I, I definitely relate. Is there a particular episode that sticks with you? There are a, a number. There's an episode we did, I think now a couple of years ago, with Susan Nyman, uh, N E I M A N. She's a philosopher. And, uh, she wrote a book called Learning from the Germans, a book that deeply influenced me. She's a Jew who grew up in Atlanta, 
studied in various places. She'd been a, a professor of philosophy in various places. She went back to Israel. She was at Yale. Now she's the Einstein professor in Berlin. And it's a great title, the Einstein it professor. Is. And she compares how Germans have dealt with the legacy of the Holocaust and how Americans have dealt with the legacy of slavery and how much better, though still imperfect, the Germans have been and what we can learn from them. We had her on about two years ago, and it was such a fascinating conversation to get us to think outside of our American-centered elements of this. We had Lawrence Wright on at the- Wait, wait, back back on, on Susan. It's hard to always remember back, but what was the core of what she was saying about that difference? And One of the biggest differences was she used this phrase, is it typical German long word, right? Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, working through your history, that the Germans made a concerted effort, encouraged by the U.S. actually, um, to study the history of the Holocaust, to bring it into people's lives. They didn't do that in the 1950s. They did it in the 1960s. It's one of the outcomes of the changes that occurred in the 1960s. And instead of running from this history, they actually marinated themselves in it and made it a part of public education and public discussion. And that still leads to certain imperfections. Certain voices are louder than others. Some could say that Jews get more attention than other groups. Um, but nonetheless, it forced them to confront this. And she talks about the silences in the US. And then you think about the attacks on critical race theory, the attacks on Toni Morrison, the book censoring in the US, and you see the contrast between these two. Yeah, it's, it's a sobering time in that regard right now. Yeah. 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 And, and that's, I mean, and, and so for me, what was interesting about that is we like to think of ourselves as the most open society. And I've spent a lot of time in Germany. In some ways, the United States is a much more open society than Germany, but not on this issue. That's the interesting thing to, when you take your, your country and you put it in historical and comparative perspective and you see it in a different light. I mean, that's what that episode really gave us. I was just I was just looking it up. It's episode one twenty one. We've done two hundred and twenty two episodes, but those who are interested, it's episode one hundred twenty one from October of twenty twenty. You also do a lot of writing for newspapers and things like that. What triggers you to write a piece? In the sense of like what's the kind of controversy or the kind of thing going on in politics that makes you think I got to get in and say what I have to say. It's nice that you can find have that picked up and have people read it. But what 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 occasions so it, it, you to do? It, that? it happens almost every day, unfortunately. <laughs> For those of us who are political junkies and care about uh, democracy, every day we see history being misused. And so there are two kinds of things that really trigger me. One is when someone powerful is just getting things entirely wrong. So uh, during Trump's first impeachment, Mike Pence. Pence's office was publishing stuff under Pence's name in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere, saying the Democrats should be like the Republican heroes in 1868 who voted uh, not to convict uh, Andrew Johnson. It turns out one of those heroes, Edmund Ross, was actually bribed. <laughs> but they didn't know the basic facts. So I wrote a piece for CNN correcting that. So sometimes it's just correcting the stupidity and ignorance <laughs> of certain political leaders. But more productively, I think what motivates me is when I think an issue is being misframed and it can be reframed in a way that we understand better by bringing historical perspective. So I'll, I'll give an example of this. The most recent piece I published in the New York Times in November, right after the midterm elections, 
was very much on thinking about how presidents have been successful in the second part of a term after a midterm election. And I think Biden has that opportunity, but it's not, as I argue, by trying to unify the country. Because after a midterm election, the first thing you see is that the country's not unified, especially for a sitting president, right? But what you do see is that coalitions are possible. And I think that's exactly what this midterm election proved. Like others that I talk about historically, this midterm election showed that a lot of Americans don't like either side. (laughs) And that means that's an opportunity for a president to lead, not to say, I've got one vision for everyone, but to say, here are some problems that we can get 60% of the public on, on board on coalition building rather than unification is what I was arguing there. So oftentimes it's trying to take an issue that's being talked about as A versus B when I see there's a C or a D way of thinking about it. That makes sense. I, I suspect for someone like you, you might measure time in books. What's next? I mean, you just came out with one, but do you have the next one percolating? Where are you on that? I, I, you know, this is the most fun time when a book is done and I can go around and talk about it, which is fun. I love talking on podcasts and, and visiting, and we've been able to do a lot of live events, which has been great. But then it's also fun to think about a new project. There's a part of me that really wants to do a book on American society uh, since the fall of the Berlin Wall. Not not another book on why the Cold War ended, but more kind of fantasy America. What What happened in the late... 20th century that brought us to this moment. And I don't just mean the 2020 election, but I mean that shifts in our society, because there's no doubt that the end of the Cold War changed so many things, but in unpredictable ways. And and I would trace the beginnings of the current Donald Trump movement, right-wing nonsense, to the late 1990s. And so something that talks about that, and these end-of-century moments that we call fantasy moments, they're always fascinating. They always seem even though they don't have to, but they always seem to be moments of incredible disjunction and complex change. That's certainly true in late 19th century Europe and late 19th century America. And I think that's true late 20th century. So there's a part of me that's interested in that, but there's also a part of me that really has the bug for the late 19th century too. So I'm not sure, one of those two. I mean, it also feels like our withdrawal from Afghanistan and very potentially are wearing out on Ukraine are analogous to giving up on the South and pulling the army out and letting it be governed in a racist fashion. Do you see that? I do. I do. I see. And I think some of our, our, um, basic pulling away from nation building and democratization. I mean, if we were talking about these things 15 years ago, we'd say America's, you know, how can we better democratize the world? (laughs) No one believes that anymore, right? And maybe that's healthy. We were overstating what we could do. But I also do worry, I think it's implied in your question, that as was the case in the 1870s, in the 2020s, we're basically pulling away from any progressive idealistic vision for the world. That doesn't mean we want to see bad things happen. It's just we don't have a vision. I mean, it's interesting that Biden is making that kind of old school attempt to stop Russia. But it's so easy to imagine by the same mechanisms that his successor of either party, as it gets more and more grim over there, potentially, we don't know which way it'll go might do what he had to do in Afghanistan. And and let's also be clear, we're, we're, we're supporting Ukraine, but supporting from a distance. Yeah. I mean, they're doing the fighting for us. Yes. 
so that so we're not bleeding, which slows the path. But we're spending a lot of money, and and they got a, an old superpower right next to them. It's going to be tough. right, yeah, right. No, but but we are. I mean, we're not bleeding, and we're not facing the energy consequences that the German, my friends in Germany, are preparing to basically ration heat this winter. Super fun to talk to you. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I mean, I think the one the one really interesting question is uh, how does Biden fit into this history? What what are the echoes of Joe Biden? Yeah, why don't you answer that? It was kind of actually that was kind of floating around in my brain. How do you see him in that in by analogy or whatever? There is a part of Biden that I I worry is Ulysses Grant, a good man, a venerable man who uh, has the right ideas, uh, but has trouble organizing and mobilizing his own party. And is a little late in his career for this for this position, right? There, there are parts when I was writing the grand chapters that felt a little bit like Biden. On the other hand, Biden has a skill set that's particularly useful in this congressional environment. And Biden is hard to hate, which I think is a real strength that he has also. But I think the grand stuff is a warning for him, right? He's got to pick his battles. He's got to be really forward thinking in how he's going to hold his party together. He should not assume, looking at Congress today, that just because the Democrats are unified behind Hakeem Jeffries today and the Republicans aren't, that it's going to stay that way when legislation goes forward, especially on an issue like Ukraine. I mean, you brought up a key topic right there. You know, I had forgotten that Grant tried to run again and lost at the convention. To me, it was like, whoa. I had read like half of his autobiography and didn't get that far or something like that. (laughs) But it's so interesting to see a president who had so, you know, the, the lead general, the big figure not make it at the party convention. So yep, yep. And so we forget that book. there was no two-term two term limit. He right. could have, could have, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. Anything else you want to say? No, this, was, this has been a wonderful conversation. Really a lot of fun. Very fun for me too. That was Jeremy Surrey. Jeremy is at jeremysurrey.net. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.